I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we grab hold of the strange and difficult passages of the Bible in order to discern the message that they hold to a modern audience. And make no mistake about it, Leviticus is a strange book, on its surface. So many things in the book are difficult for modern audiences to understand or to connect to. Ideas like sacrifice, uncleanness, priesthood, ordination, continual washings, incense, atonement, and more are foreign to modern people. And each of these ideas is wrapped around or connected to the tent that we just finished reading about in the book of Exodus. You know, the one that we will never get to see, and not a single bit of this has any real application for us in this day and age. And yet Leviticus is the heart of the Torah. It is the central driving force behind what it means to worship Hashem, what it means to dwell with Him. In our definitions for many of the terms that I mentioned above, we see repeated in the Renewed Covenant. They're found here. What does it mean to be clean? What does it mean to be holy? What is purity, and how does it affect my relationship and my closeness to Hashem? What is atonement, and what does it mean for me as a person, and how does it apply to objects? Each of these are things that we will be addressing as we proceed through this book. But before then, we're here at the beginning of Leviticus discussing sacrifice. The practice of taking something of value, usually a living animal but not always, and giving anywhere from the entire animal to just a small portion of the animal to God. And as we discussed last week, there are attitudes that are associated with each of the sacrifices. So while we cannot practice sacrifice as described here in Leviticus, we can learn and practice the attitudes of worship that are present before God. So let's go through the four primary types of sacrifice that are presented in Leviticus once more and discuss the attitudes that are present in each before we focus on the Shlomim sacrifice for today. First, there's the Ola, the burnt offering or ascending offering. This was an offering of fear to Hashem, and it was the first offering ever offered on any altar that you will read of in Scripture. This offering in the attitude of fear, awe, wonder, and respect, and adoration is the foundation of our worship. It is this that is the beginning of wisdom in Psalm 111, and the fear of Hashem is the beginning of knowledge in Proverbs 1. And this sacrifice is a way of physically demonstrating that to God. And how do we practice the Ola today? Well, the way that Paul recommends in the book of Romans is to give all of yourself to Hashem, to make an Ola of your own life, burn up all that came before and the new creation that is left in your place and in your skin then belongs to him entirely. 
The second type of sacrifice we talked about last week as well, the mincha, grain, or meat sacrifice. This was a bloodless form of sacrifice that bears with it several ideals, primarily the ideals that are found in the name of the sacrifice. Because mincha does not mean grain or first fruits, but rather means gift or tribute. And these are the attitudes that are contained in this type of sacrifice, that of giving a gift to someone who is close to you, a simple show of appreciation, and the gift given to the high king as part of a treaty that has been cut with that king. The third type of sacrifice is where we will be focusing today, the shlamim, the peace or fellowship sacrifice, a sacrifice that was eaten as part of a community. Now, it was because this offering was given as a sacrifice that Hashem was naturally included into the community of those who engage in the sacrifice. It is possible to have fellowship with others in meals, but at the time of the tabernacle, it was also possible to invite Hashem to take part in your fellowship by offering a shlamim on his altar. But the shlamim has more to it than just this, as we'll get into today. The fourth and final type of sacrifice is the chata'at, or the sin sacrifice. This was a sacrifice that worked to purify or cleanse a person, item, or area from the encroachment of death that is a side effect of our sinful human nature. For we are sin, and we have sin in our bodies. Our flesh is by its very nature sinful, and this nature is opposed to the nature of God. And so for us to come into his presence, we must have the effects of sin purified from us. But this is the topic for next week. This week, we are looking at the Shlamim sacrifice alone. So let's read Leviticus chapter 3, and then speak of this sacrifice in greater detail. And if that which he presents is a slaughtering of the peace offerings, if he is bringing it of the herd, whether male or female, he brings a perfect one before Hashem. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering, and slay it at the door of the tent of appointment. And the sons of Aaron the priests shall sprinkle the blood on the altar all around. And from the sacrifice of peace offerings he shall bring a fire offering to Hashem, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the loins, and the appendage on the liver which he removes with the kidneys. And the sons of Aaron shall burn it on the altar upon the ascending offering which is on the wood, which is on the fire, as an offering made by fire, a sweet fragrance to Hashem. And if that which he presents is from the flock for a sacrifice of peace offerings to Hashem, a male or female, he brings a perfect one. If he is bringing a lamb as his offering, then he shall bring it before Hashem. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it in front of the tent of appointment. And the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle its blood on the altar round about. And from the sacrifice of peace offerings he shall bring near, as a fire offering to Hashem, its fat, all the fat tail which he removes close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them by the loins, and the appendage on the liver, which he removes with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire to Hashem. And if his offering is a goat, then he shall bring it before Hashem, and he shall lay his hand on the head and slay it before the tent of appointment. And the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle its blood on the altar all around. And from it he shall bring his offering as an offering made by fire to Hashem, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. 
and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the loins, and the appendage on the liver, which he removes with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire for a sweet fragrance. All the fat belongs to Hashem, an everlasting law throughout your generations, and all your dwellings. You do not eat any fat or any blood. For millennia, the people of God have gotten together and shared meals with each other as a way of sharing life with each other. We gather and eat to celebrate. We gather and eat to mourn. We gather and eat simply because we are together. We gather and eat because that is our example. All through scripture, shared meals have been the foundation of the community of Messiah. Acts 2, 42 and they were continuing steadfastly in the teaching of the emissaries and in the fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in the prayers. Breaking of bread there, that's not talking of breaking bread as in communion, but rather breaking bread in a communal meal. Or Acts 2 verse 46, and day by day, continuing with one mind in the holy place and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. The earliest community of Messianic believers dedicated themselves to fellowship, to coming together and eating. Sharing a meal gives us the opportunity to pause our lives for a moment. It allows us to come together in practical community and to spend time with each other. And things happen psychologically when we share a meal together, and it helps to bind ourselves together with others. Now, psychologists have only very recently stumbled upon something that philosophers have talked about for centuries, and religious communities have practiced for even longer. Sharing a meal with others creates a bond with them that is not able to be duplicated anywhere else. It puts everyone on the same footing as we all engage in this necessary activity of taking in energy from the things that God has created for this purpose. In 1965, Yale University conducted a study that was led by psychologist Irving Janis on the psychological effects that eating has on a person. In this study, it was discovered, or rather scientifically demonstrated, what has been known for much longer. Food creates in a person good feelings, and a persuasive message that is then accompanied by food is better received than a message that is not. Now, this is one reason why salesmen will take a person out to eat when they're attempting to make a large sale. A person is more receptive when eating. In another study conducted in 2019 that was conducted by Caitlin Woolley of Cornell University and Ayelet Fischbach of University of Chicago found that sharing a meal increases cooperation between all that share in the meal. They also discovered that this cooperation increases when the food is shared from the same dish. For example, the study showed that eating chips and salsa from a shared dish before entering into negotiation on wages increased all parties' desire to cooperate with each other and to reach a decision that benefited everyone. Now, this was over and above the cooperation that was gained when a meal was simply eaten in each other's presence from separate plates or dishes. In the book Eating Together, Alice Juilliard argues that dining together can radically shift people's perspective and serve as a great equalizer that is able to cross race, gender, and socioeconomic backgrounds. When people eat together, they feel as if they are on equal footing, and they become more amicable with each other. 
connectedness is increased, and camaraderie becomes possible with people who may have nothing in common. Because if there's one thing that we all have in common, it is our need for food. Now, I would like to ask the question, is it possible that science is only now beginning to understand what the Bible has taught since it was written and compiled? Sharing a meal creates a sense of community. It creates the atmosphere for fellowship, peace, and unity. These two studies in this one book, alongside many other studies of these kinds, demonstrate that eating a meal makes a person more receptive to a persuasive message. It increases cooperation among even those on opposite sides of an issue and puts everyone on equal footing before each other. Conversely, eating alone has negative side effects according to scientific studies. In a recent study analysis by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development showed that students who do not regularly eat with their parents are significantly more likely to be truant at school. One presentation was given at the European Congress on obesity, and it stated that children who do not eat dinner with their parents at least twice a week were 40% more likely to be overweight compared to those who do. And finally, it's widely recognized in psychological material that eating alone can increase a person's feelings of isolation or alienation. It reinforces negative feelings and emotions. So how wonderful is it, in light of all of this, that the God of the universe seeks to share a meal with his people? He made fellowship with him a priority in the community of Israel. For that is what the Shlemim sacrifice is. It is a meal of fellowship that is participated in by all parties, and then some. So who all is part of the fellowship? Well, in the Shlemim sacrifice, Hashem receives the fat, what we would call the suet, and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver. They were all placed on the altar as Hashem's portion. And that is really all that this chapter covers, is God's portion of the sacrifice. But if we turn forward to chapter 7, we discover what happens to the rest of the sacrifice. The priest received from the sacrifice the right thigh of the animal as their portion to be eaten by them and their families, and the worshiper received the rest of the animal to eat and to share as they would. Now, the Shlemim sacrifice is the only sacrifice in which all three participants in the sacrificial system, the worshiper, the priest, and God himself, all receive part of the animal. But when you bring an animal that's a bull, a lamb, or a goat, there's more meat available than can be eaten by this cross-section alone because the animal must be eaten in as much as two days or as little as before the next sunrise. This means that the worshiper, the one offering the sacrifice, would need to invite others to participate in this meal. And the meal and the sacrifice, it became a big deal for everyone who was involved. And if we continue on in chapter 7, we discover that there are more stipulations that go along with this sacrifice such as a person must be clean before eating, the sacrifice must be eaten in a clean place, and the time frame in which the sacrifice must be eaten, depending on the type of the sacrifice. Now, what do these things help us to see? Usually, we pull from these instructions that holiness is transferable, and when an animal is sacrificed, then it becomes holy, and it becomes profaned when it's eaten in a defiled place or by an unclean or defiled person. All of that's true but there's something else going on here. 
These commands reveal that Hashem is a participant in the meal when it's shared, regardless of where the meat is taken to be eaten by the worshiper. And if the sacrifice is taken and eaten in a defiled or unclean place, then there is guilt. And if a person who is unclean eats of it, there is guilt. Because Hashem is in the presence of all who eat of the sacrifice. He is the unseen but the most recognized participant of this meal. And this meal is eaten for friendship. This meal is eaten for fellowship. This meal is eaten for peace. And so as we always do, we should look to scripture for examples of this type of sacrifice to confirm any thoughts that we may have about the Shlamim sacrifice. And throughout scripture, we find many examples of peace offerings that were offered to Hashem. But there are none so extravagant as the offerings offered by Solomon at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 62 through 64. And the king and all Israel with him sacrificed sacrifices before Hashem, and Solomon slaughtered sacrifices of peace offerings, which he sacrificed to Hashem, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Thus the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of Hashem. On that day the king set apart the middle of the courtyard that was in front of the house of Hashem, and there he made an ascending offerings and the grain offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before Hashem was too small to contain the ascending offerings and the grain offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep were offered as a Shlamim offering. Why so extravagant? Usually when we see this, we think, oh, what a waste. All of those animals just gone. No, Solomon is feeding everyone that was present for 14 days as they celebrated Sukkot and then engaged in the extra seven days of celebration. And each of these animals, they had to be eaten within two days of being offered. If we were to consult a military quartermaster, we could discover just how many people this would have fed, given the time frame and the number of animals that were offered. This dedication ceremony was indeed a time of great celebration and fellowship with Hashem. And when we turn back to our own experience and the meals that we share with each other, we discover that when we participate in a shared meal, especially one where everyone brings something, the food that is brought is, in a way, a form of sacrifice. It is giving of our own bounty to share with those around us a meal of fellowship, a meal eaten to develop cooperation and unity in our midst, a meal that is attended by the God of the universe. And while we have specific times that are feasts unto Hashem, as we will read of in Leviticus 23, we discover in the Shlamim that any meal that is participated in by all and shared by all and eaten with a heart of gratitude unto Hashem is, in its own way, a feast unto Hashem. And as we look at the heart behind the Shlamim, we discover the attitudes of gratitude and joy and sincerity and sanctity. Any opportunity to eat with another is a reason to celebrate and to thank God for his provision, not just of food, but of friends and of community. Now, one thing that we will find if we do a topical study on peace offerings, as I did in preparation for this teaching, we will discover that nearly every peace offering that we read of in scripture is preceded by an Ola offering, with three exceptions. 1 Samuel eleven fourteen through 15 
And Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they set up Saul to reign before Hashem in Gilgal. And there they slaughtered sacrifices of peace offerings before Hashem. And there Saul rejoiced, and all the men of Israel very greatly. Israel had just come together to defeat an Ammonite army. This victory being the first time that Israel had worked together to defeat a common enemy under the leadership of their new king Saul. They were feeling unified after this victory. They had just worked together in battle and placed their lives on the line next to each other. And this was how they celebrated. They did not have an Ola, or at least there's none recorded. Rather, they celebrated with a fellowship offering. And just as with the dedication of the temple, the peace offering here was in recognition of a new chapter in the history of the people of Israel. The second occasion that a shlamim is offered without an accompanying ola is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 22. And Hezekiah spoke to the heart of all the Levites, those having good understanding concerning Hashem. So they ate during the appointed time, seven days, slaughtering sacrifices of peace offering and making confessions to Hashem, God of their fathers. Now in this case, Hezekiah had just reinstituted the festival of Passover to its rightful time and place, and during the week of Matzah, they offered peace offerings every day of the festival. Now, in this specific time of history, the priests had sacrificed Ola offerings for themselves before any of this occurred, but the people had not had time to cleanse themselves for the festival, and so the king prayed to God to forgive the people for this trespass, and he does. And so as they come back together, north and south, for the celebration of the Passover together for the first time in over a century, there is a celebration of peace offerings and the accompanying feast involved in their celebration. And so the people are able to eat of the Passover and of the fellowship peace offerings. The third time that we read of peace offerings being offered by themselves and as not part of a series of sacrifices is also in Second Chronicles, just a few chapters later, in Second Chronicles 33, verses 15 through 17. And he, that being Manasseh, removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of Hashem, and all the altars that had been built in the mount in the house of Hashem in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city, and he built the altar of Hashem, and he slaughtered sacrifices of peace offering and thanks offering on it, and ordered Judah to serve Hashem, God of Israel. But the people were still slaughtering on their high places, though only to Hashem their God. The king Manasseh was, in the beginning of his reign, a king who was evil in the sight of Hashem, and he did not listen when Hashem spoke to him. He was captured and taken to Babylon, and while there he repented of his sin and was allowed by Hashem to return to Jerusalem. When he returned, he attempted to bring the people back to the worship of Hashem. He tore down false idols, he rebuilt the altar, and he offered peace and thank offerings, and commanded the people to return to Hashem worship, which they did to a degree. Now, in this case, there's something unique going on. In all three, there is a new era beginning, a significant change occurring in the history of the nation as a whole, or a change of policy that's being implemented by the king. Whether it was the confirmation of Saul as the first king of Judah, the return of Passover for the entirety of the split nations of the Hebrews under Hezekiah, or the return to the worship of Hashem under Manasseh, all three times that a peace offering occurs on its own, without an accompanying Olah, 
were times of rejoicing because of a transition that had occurred for the entire nation. Every other time that we read of a Shlemim offering being accomplished in Scripture, there is an accompanying Ola that is also offered. And as we consider this, we can infer that this is because these two ideas are in many ways inseparable. The fear of Hashem must accompany any fellowship that might happen with Him or within His community. But the attitude that comes after fear and the offering of a gift is the attitude of gratitude, a desire for fellowship and friendship. And if we look to the word used for the sacrifice, shlamim, we discover that it is derived from several connected ideas. Its most basic root is shalom, which means to have a covenant of peace, whether through the making of peace or by causing peace. But this word also means to be whole or complete. The Shlomim offering was simply a way to demonstrate that you are not whole as a person without Hashem in your life. And this is the foundational truth of our relationship with Hashem. We are in fellowship with Him. We are in community with Him. And not just with Him, but with all who are His. We are all together, everyone who is His, His people, His branches, His sheep, His congregation his body, his nation, and his kingdom. And this ideal of fellowship is carried out in three ways, because the Shlemim offering has three sub-sacrifices that are each considered a peace offering as well. These subsets are found in Leviticus 7. The first is found in Leviticus 7, verses 11 and 12. And this is the Torah of the sacrifice of peace offerings which is brought to Hashem. If he brings it for thanksgiving, then he shall bring it with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened thin cakes anointed with oil, or cakes of finely blended flour mixed with oil. This is the thanksgiving offering. This is an offering of celebration and joyous gratitude. This is the offering that was given as a meal of fellowship with God, something that he has done as well as, now get this, The thanksgiving offering was one that was given in anticipation of something that God was about to do. Now, it's widely recognized that the Passover sacrifice, if it can be categorized among the sacrifices of Leviticus, is a peace offering. It was one where God received part of the animal, the blood in the basin and on the doorpost, and the priests and the layman shared the remainder of the animal. Other ways in which the Passover is like a thanksgiving offering is that none of it was to be left until morning. It had to be eaten by only clean people. And it was accomplished in anticipation of a deliverance that was about to occur, or in gratitude for the salvation that had already occurred throughout the plagues. The Passover sacrifice was an offering of fellowship as the participants ate together in community of the Lamb that demonstrated their own fellowship with God. And this was the first expression of this sacrifice, the giving of thanks to God and celebration of all that he has done for you. And when we get down to it, we discover that thanksgiving and praise, well, they go hand in hand, because praise is recounting who God is and what he has done for you. Thanksgiving is the feeling of gratitude and the action of giving back that goes alongside praise. 
Psalm 95, 1 and 2, Come, let us sing to Hashem. Let us raise a shout to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His face with thanksgiving, and let us raise a shout to Him in Psalm. Psalm 100, verse 1, A psalm of thanksgivings. Raise a shout for Hashem, all you earth. Or how about Psalm 26, 6 through 7? I wash my hands in innocence, and I walk around your altar, O Hashem, to raise a voice of thanksgiving and to declare all your wonders. Thanksgiving and praise are very close to each other. Because when you thank God for what he has done, you invariably praise him for what he has done. And the thanksgiving offering is the perfect excuse for bringing others together and then declaring before them the praises for Hashem for all that he has done for you. Now, the second and third subset of Shlomim offering are found in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 16. And if the sacrifice he brings is a vow or a voluntary offering, it is eaten the same day that the priest brings the sacrifice, and what is left of it is eaten the next day. So first off, the vow offering. What is a vow? Well, the Hebrew word for vow is neder, and it means to promise positively to do something. And that's it in a nutshell. In the ancient Near East, when a person vowed to do something, they would declare their promise in connection to a god that was to oversee the vow and then to act to punish if the vow was not carried out. And the way that this was done was to use the name of the god who was overseeing the vow as part of the vow. Now, we see this all through scripture. Ruth 3.13, for example, where it says, Stop overnight tonight, and in the morning it shall be that if he does redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not pleased to redeem you, then I shall redeem you, as Hashem lives. Lie down until morning. Or 1 Samuel 14.38-39. And Saul said, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. For as Hashem lives who saves Israel... Though it be Jonathan my son, he shall certainly die. But not one among all of the people answered him. Or Jeremiah 4, 1-2 If you do return, O Israel, declares Hashem, return to me. And if you remove your abomination from my presence and cease straying, and shall answer, As Hashem lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, these nations shall bless themselves in him, and they shall boast in him. Or in the very next chapter, Jeremiah 5, 1-2. Diligently search the streets of Jerusalem, and please look and know and seek in her open places if you find a man. If there is anyone doing justice, seeking the truth, then I shall pardon her. Even when they say, as Hashem lives, they swear falsely for certain. Now that phrase, as Hashem lives, was a way of calling on the name of Hashem to seal a vow or a promise. Today we do the same thing when we say, I swear by God, or by God I'll do this. And we even see the same thing in pagan cultures. For example, the phrase, by Jove, is a call to have Jupiter seal a vow, or a declaration of the power of Jove, which is Jupiter. And that's just one example. History and literature, they're full of statements similar to this that are holdovers from previous centuries of worship. I mean, even C.S. Lewis, the great Christian theologian, ignorantly uses the phrase by Jove in many of his works. And if you dig deep enough, the concept of taking a vow or promising to do something in the name of a god or goddess exists 
in nearly every religion. And so when a Hebrew took a vow in the name of Hashem, what was required of him? Well, he had to seal the deal with the sacrifice, so to speak, the blood of the animal acting to seal the pledge. And the party that was being sworn to and the witness of the vow would then be present at the sacrifice, and they would all eat of the meal together. And in this case, the priest became the officiator to oversee the vow. And a vow, it took many forms, including covenants. As part of sealing a covenant, there would be a shared meal, and the vow offering was how that meal was arrived at. The animal would be killed, and part would be offered to God or gods overseeing the covenant, and the rest of the animal would then become the meal that was eaten to seal the vow. Now, this is touchy one, as taking vows is something that we don't tend to do in this age, or at least we shouldn't. In fact, we read in the New Testament that there is a change of sorts that goes on here. And how is it that Yeshua tells us we are to take vows in the age of Messiah? Let's look to Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to Adonai. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, because it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor swear by your head, because you are not able to make one hair white or black. But let your word yes be yes, and your no be no, and what goes beyond these is from the wicked one. If history has shown us one thing, it is that humans do not keep their word. And when we bring God's name into our vows and then we don't keep them, then we are in a very real way taking God's name in vain. We are calling on him to ensure our integrity. And when we act without integrity in our dealings, well, then he will hold it against us. And so Yeshua tells us that we should act in integrity at all times. Our words should ensure our integrity simply because we are God's people. But when you swear by things that you cannot control, you are forcing someone or something else to take part in your integrity, someone who may not want to be involved in your vow or promise. But we are the people of Hashem. We should be people of our word, where we don't need to bring the name of Hashem into our dealings with other men. We are men and we are unable to truly control our future. We cannot know that we will stay true to our word or vows. Because God takes vows seriously, especially when his name is the one that is ensuring the vow, we must be sure to do what we vow to do. Ecclesiastes 5, 4-6 says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he takes no pleasure in fools. Pay that which you have vowed. It is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not allow your mouth to cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Or how about Deuteronomy twenty three twenty one through 22 says, When you make a vow to Hashem your God, do not delay to pay it, for Hashem your God is certainly requiring it of you, and it shall be sin in you. But when you abstain from vowing, it is not sin in you. Vows are very important to Hashem, because taking one and then not keeping it is to use His name in vain in a very real way.
And of the Ten Commandments, there is only one that includes the warning that God will not leave unpunished the person who does not keep the command. And it is the third command. Exodus 20, verse 7, Do not bring the name of Hashem your God to nothing, for Hashem does not leave the one unpunished who brings his name to nothing. And we see this reflected here. The vow offering, including the taking of vows, is part of a person's worship of Hashem. Vows are a very serious part of living in relationship to God. And then the final type of peace offering is the voluntary offering. This is the Shlomim offering that a person gives when they simply want to be in fellowship with God. No needs or desires other than a desire to be close to God. And that's all. Sharing a table with Hashem and those close to Him as well as with those closest to us. Because fellowship is an integral part of the kingdom of God. Sharing life with God and with each other. Because none of us are lone wolves. We need each other and we need God. And the Shlomim sacrifice, it reminds us of this truth. Not only that we need each other and without each other we are incomplete but that Hashem seeks to be in fellowship with each one of us. This God of life, God of creation, the authority over all of the earth, seeks to know us, and seeks for us to know Him. And the Shlomim is how this is accomplished. Ephesians 2, 13-18 But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For He is our peace who has made both one, and having broken down the partition of the barrier, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the Torah of the commands and dogma, so as to create in himself one renewed man from the two, thus making peace. And to completely restore to favor both of them unto God, in one body through the cross, having destroyed the enmity by it. And having come, he brought as good news peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near, because through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And it's through his sacrifice and our memorial of the Passover sacrifice that we are bound together in community. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16-17 through 17, The cup of blessing which we bless is not a sharing in the blood of Messiah. The bread that we break, is it not a sharing of the body of Messiah? Because there is one bread, we, who are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We who were many, we're bound together as one under our Messiah as we partake of the peace offering of his flesh. And in the last days, there will be a celebratory meal that all who are part of the bride of Messiah will partake in, one that will seal a vow of covenant once again, one that will bring us all into fellowship together with our Messiah in a very real way. Revelation 19, 6-7 And I heard as the voice of a great crowd, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunders, saying, Hallelujah, for Hashem El Shaddai reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him praise, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has prepared herself. And to her it was given to be dressed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the holy ones. And He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who have been called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. 
and this is what we are taught by the Shlemim. God desires fellowship with us. God desires that we then fellowship with each other. And God desires that we join ourselves to each other and to him in fellowship. And he has provided for himself the lamb that accomplishes this bringing together of his people and himself in peace. All that's left for us is to live this out in our lives as we dereshchai. As we seek life, we will seek to live in peace with God and man. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshchai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Dereshchai, as we seek life. Shalom.